following audio is from Crossroads Church in West Ossipee, New Hampshire. For more information about Crossroads Church, you can go to www.crossroadsossipee.com. And question 19, is there any way to escape punishment and be brought back into God's favor? Reconciles. By Redeemer. Excellent. And adults. Yes. To satisfy his justice, God himself, out of mere mercy, reconciles us to himself and delivers us from sin and the punishment for sin by a Redeemer. Amen. Now, I almost forgot to put... to this question and answer up today, which happens frequently, as you all know. But how important is that? If we, if we just stop with last week's question and don't pay any attention to that today, we've been, uh, all we have is bad news. The good news is that God himself stepped in to make a way for us to be forgiven. Amen. Amen. Uh, so the second thing that I want to, um, briefly mention uh, before we go on, um, and they're not here this morning, but I, I, I would encourage you all to reach out to Nate and Becky and to thank them for their service. Sorry. Uh, thank them for our service. Nate has served as our youth pastor uh, for the last couple of years, um, and they're they're moving on. Um, we'll still see them from time to time, but uh, it won't be... Sorry. Um, they're moving on. So thank them. Um, please reach out to them um, and thank them for their service. Okay, well, that was unplanned. Sorry. I'm really glad uh, to see you all this morning. Again, um, as was writing this week, uh, preparing to preach this morning, I really uh, didn't, didn't think that you would come back. Um, I don't know about you, but I've, I've really been feeling beat up um, the last few weeks. Um, and uh, I said to Carol Ann, um, let's try it again. <laughs> oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? I don't know about you, but that phrase has been ringing in my ears um, all week. And we're going to look at Luke chapter 9, verses 43 to 56 this morning, and that starts on page 867 in the Pew Bibles, if that's helpful to you. I would encourage you to open your paper, paper Bibles. Paper Bibles. Um, yeah. Wow. Yeah, I went down south there for a second. Sorry. Um, yeah. Yeah. So um, this text that we're going to look at this morning uh, gets broken up into several small chunks in our modern printings of the Bible, uh, but that shouldn't keep us from looking at this, um, this resume of failures uh, for the disciples. Uh, it shouldn't keep us from looking at, at that all at once. Um, and as we look at this, I know, um, I know that sometimes it may sound like uh, I'm... I'm I'm picking on these knuckleheads, the disciples, um, and perhaps not giving them the honor that they are due as the Lord's apostles, the ones that he chose to send, uh, send out. And, and maybe that's accurate. Um, 
And after the apostles were given the Holy Spirit uh, to dwell inside them, you can read about that in the book of Acts, amazing things were accomplished through these guys. Uh, um, um, but that's because the Holy Spirit was present. Uh, well, so I'm glad you brought that up this morning. Um, but this account in Luke chapter 9, um, the only amazing thing about them is God's grace. Um, and uh, anyway, let's, let's look at it together. Luke chapter 9, uh, starting verse, uh, halfway through verse 43. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them, so they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you, among you all, is the one who is great. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. Let's pray. Father, we need your help this morning as we turn to your word. We know, Lord, that these are your words, inspired by your Holy Spirit, and so are true and trustworthy for us. Lord, we pray that you would help us understanding the message that you have for us here. We ask for your help applying it to our lives. We give you this time, Lord, for your glory and your good. In Jesus' name, amen. So, let's take just a minute to remember some of the events leading up to this text as we've uh, studied Luke. Um, Jesus had fed the 5,000, right? That was a big deal. Uh, it was more like 10,000 plus. Um, Peter confessed Jesus as the Christ, and Jesus said that he would build his church on that confession, not on Peter as the rock, but the confession that Jesus is Christ. Um, Jesus miraculously paid Peter's temple tax. Uh, that's not included in Luke, but you can read about that in Matthew. Um, he miraculously paid Peter and, and his own temple tax by having Peter go fishing, and he caught a fish that had uh, a coin in his mouth. It's, it's, I remember going to the Holy Lands, and you could buy little 
metal fish that were supposed to represent that. You can read about that in Matthew chapter 17, verse 24. Just a neat thing. Um, Jesus had predicted that some of the disciples would not taste death until they saw the kingdom of God. That's a big thing. And he took Peter and James and John up the Mount of Transfiguration. Right? That's a big thing. And, 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 um, and then he returns to a crowd of people and nine disciples unable to cast out a demon. And then Jesus casts out the demon himself, then heals the boy and gives him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. So that kind of brings us up to speed to where we're at right now. And while they were still marveling at everything that he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand the saying, and it was concealed from them so they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. The disciples saw the casting out of the demon of, of the boy here as a victory over darkness. Right? But then Jesus turns around and tells them how the real victory would be won through his atoning death on the cross. Let these words sink into your ears. This is an idiom in Greek, but they've done a fair job here. Um, Let these enter your ears, sink into your hearts. Um, This is a contrast between what they had been seeing and what they are soon going to see. Since the disciples couldn't perceive and therefore couldn't understand what Jesus meant, it results only in distress and sadness for them. They didn't they don't understand. They didn't understand what he was saying. And the foolish thing about it is, is he had already said this to them once before. He was just he's saying the same thing again. Um, uh, back in verse 21 of this same chapter, Jesus said uh, something similar to them. And Jesus meaning was concealed from them so that they couldn't understand. That's an interesting phrase. It was, it was concealed from them so they might not perceive it. What does that, what does that mean? It was concealed from them. What is it that was concealing this truth from them? Now, this is a hard thing to think about. Is it, is it God's hand? like over their eyes so they can't see it? Was it, was it God's mercy to spare them from sorrow? Like, I, I just don't want them to completely fall apart, so I'm just not going to let them get that. I don't, I don't think that's what it was at all. I don't think that this is the hand of God. I think that it's concealed from them by their own flesh. It was their own pride, their own weakness, their own fear that kept them from understanding what Jesus said. They didn't understand what Jesus meant because it didn't line up with what their ideas of how this was all supposed to go. Uh, And they were afraid to ask him about it because what he might say could threaten the little kingdom that they wanted to set up. Remember, Peter wanted to set up tents so that Jesus and Moses and Elijah could all hang out there on the mountain and the kingdom could start there. 
And then everybody would go to that mountain instead of Mount Zion in Jerusalem, right? We've all been around Capernaum. The mountain is near Capernaum. This is our new headquarters. Let the kingdom start here, right? So for Jesus to say, I'm about to be handed over to the hands of men, like, well, okay, whatever that means, but, right, let's go back to the mountain, right? Let's start over. What they wanted is instead of Jesus to be delivered into the hands of men, they wanted men to be delivered into his hands, right? And instead, Jesus again predicts that he's about to be delivered into their hands. They just didn't get it, right? They have their own plans. Jesus is a part of it, but they didn't really get or, I think, care what his plan was, right? They kind of had their own, their own ideas, you think I'm being too harsh on them? You probably don't. I think I am. But then I'm not. Look at verse 46. An argument arose among them as to which one of them was the greatest. Still think I'm being harsh? These knuckleheads? It's so clear that their, their lack of understanding of Jesus' mission and the prediction of his death that while Jesus has his eye on the cross, the disciples have their eyes on their own crowns, right? They argued over who is the greatest. What difference does that make? If Jesus is king, it doesn't, right? We get that now. Um, hindsight's a great thing, isn't it? And Mark, uh, the Gospel of Mark, in verse uh, chapter 9, verse 33 and 34 shows how embarrassed the disciples were to be caught having this argument. They weren't like sitting around the campfire and Jesus is there too and they're having this argument. They are having this argument separate from Jesus and then he questioned them about it and they're like, I, I, I wasn't I didn't say anything. They came to Capernaum and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Can you imagine? Can you imagine being busted by the king of kings, right? Having an argument over which disciple is the greatest, right? This is not exactly Ted Williams versus Babe Ruth kind of debates because that's settled, right? You know, this is serious business. That's, you can have that discussion if you want, foolish though it might be, right? This is, this is nothing more than gross self-promotion, focusing on crowns while Jesus was focused on the cross. Just imagine, who, who do you think is having this argument? Well, not, couldn't be one of the holy apostles that carved into the stone, Right? Peter, James, and John got to go to the Mount of Transfiguration, right? They got to see Jesus transfigured. They got to see Moses and Elijah. That certainly put them on a higher level than the nine jokers who couldn't cast out one demon. Peter, right? The rock. I'm going to build my church on that rock. Right? So the church got that all screwed up. And, and said, it must be Peter that we're building, that Jesus is going to build his church on. The Pope is evidence of that. 
<laughs> it's a clear misunderstanding, right, of, of the elevation of people. So now we can look back on this and say, you, you bunch of jokers have got this so messed up. And we can condemn and we can point our finger and we can judge and we can criticize. I'm saying that because I need to give myself permission to do this, right? How does Jesus respond? Not quite the same way. Jesus responds with grace. Verse 47. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among all of you is the one who is great. Matthew Henry wrote, Jesus Christ is perfectly acquainted with what the thought with the thoughts and intents of our hearts. He perceived their thoughts. The ESV says, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, in verse 47. Those thoughts are words to him, and our whispers are loud cries. It is a good reason why we should keep up a strict government of our thoughts, because Christ takes a strict cognizance of them. Jesus knew the reasoning of their hearts. And what did he see? Humble servants, leaders of the church, just a bunch of great guys. No, he didn't. He saw vain rivalry. I get to be up on the mountain, and so, therefore, you jokers are nowhere near as as good as me. Well, I mean, he said that the church was going to be built on me. Mm -hmm. Pride, arrogance, selfish ambition. This is a short list of what Jesus saw. These poisonous qualities are what the child was missing that Jesus called into their midst. That's what the child was lacking. And so should they. The reason why I don't like this is because I see myself. I've been there. I fought hard to claw and scratch and scrape my way up the ladder. In the church. What a joke. Praise the Lord for his grace. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. This is the example of the child, right? But isn't this also the example of Jesus? Right? It's proof that the disciples were not yet in line with Jesus' plan for his kingdom. Jesus' example was subjective lowliness is, is the only way to, re, to achieve objective greatness. That, let me say that again. That didn't sound good at all. 
Jesus' example was subjective lowliness as the way to objective greatness, right? To humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord. Mark 9.35, Jesus says, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Well, that doesn't sound very much like arguing over who is the greatest in the kingdom to me, does it to you? But wait, there's more. Bad understanding from the disciples. Verse 49, John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. Now, this one is even more troubling to me because this philosophy is widespread and happily accepted in the church today. I have been, probably continue to be guilty of this. Why would the disciples try and stop someone from casting out demons in Jesus' name? Someone who was honestly helping people in the name of Jesus. Why would they do that? Not some other name. Jesus' name. Why would they do that? Rivalry and pride. The disciples tried to stop someone else from casting out demons in the name of Jesus out of rivalry and pride. Maybe they couldn't understand the idea that someone else was having success in the face of their failure to cast out a demon. Not really sure. Perhaps they just couldn't stand a little competition because after all, that's what church is all about. Was this guy, this other guy, on another team? No. No. There's two examples in Scripture on how to do this right. The first example is Moses in Numbers, chapter 11, verses 26 through 29. There's a whole story that goes before this, but I think you're going to get the example without having to read the entire book of Numbers to get to this point. Now, two men remained in the camp, one named Eldad and the other named Medad, and the spirit rested on them. They were among those registered, but they had not gone out, of, out to the tent, and so they prophesied in the camp. And a young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth, said, My Lord Moses, stop them. But Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. No, no, no. Make them stop. They're not even wearing the right color t-shirt. They are not on our team. Don't. Make them stop. That's our job. The second example is Paul in Philippians chapter 1. Verses 15 through 18. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here in prison for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? 
only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Even preaching out of rivalry gets the job done, so long as Christ is proclaimed. This is so troubling to me because there are churches up and down this road. But we're the good one. (laughs) It's easy to laugh, but is it not true? Look, I love you. I really do. I don't know them. And that's okay. We're not better. We're different. Oh, boy. (laughs) But that's okay. As long as Christ is proclaimed, that's what matters. Right? We, We like the way things are here. Right? We're not comfortable with the way things happen there. Okay. Don't be. It's fine. They're still proclaiming Christ. There's not a competition. All right? I'm saying, I'm saying this just out loud. Pointed in this direction, and you get to hear it too. I can't tell you the number of times that I've sat and thought, I'm so glad things are going so good there. I can't wait for them to close. I'm sorry, but that's true. And that's foolishness, the same foolishness in the disciples. The twelve were not to be Christ's only representatives on earth. The twelve disciples would have hated the idea of the church at this point, right? Because they, they wouldn't have their hands on it. It wouldn't be under their control, right? They should have rejoiced that the power of God was at work on earth in Jesus' name in others beyond themselves. That's how things spread, right? Being excited about that fact would show that their true interest was at that moment in Messiah's mission of grace. But it wasn't. It was in their own promotion and pride. And finally, verse uh, verse 51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire? to come down from heaven and consume them. But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. These two guys who are arguing about who should be the greatest, when Jesus is rejected in a Samaritan village, their solution is to burn them to death, the whole town. How come we don't have a date on the calendar to celebrate that one? Right? They just didn't get it. They didn't get Jesus at all. You have to think about this for a minute. It's very important that this is a Samaritan village. Right? This isn't a village in Capernaum. This is a village in Samaria. There's a cultural problem with that. 
right? The folks in this village didn't reject Jesus and his teaching. They didn't want him there because he was Jewish and he was on his way to Jerusalem. The Samaritans were rejected by the Jews and told they didn't worship correctly because they didn't worship in Jerusalem. It wasn't the center of their religious life, right? The, the Jews and the Samaritans were enemies. They'd been, the Samaritan village had been long rejected by the Jews, not allowed to worship at the temple in Jerusalem. There's more cultural friction here than anything else. And how did James and John respond? Burn them. Let's torch the place. And all those people, what a bunch of jerks. That's what they wanted. Consuming fire from heaven. I, I have to admit, that one has not passed through my mind. Close. Not quite. Luke doesn't record what Jesus said to them, just that he rebuked them. And I'm grateful for that. What grace is exercised by the Holy Spirit through Luke's pen and not writing those words down for us to read? Lack of understanding, lack of humility, lack of love, lack of grace. This sounds like a real bunch of winners. But if you can read these accounts of the various and repeated failures of the disciples, and not catch a glimpse of yourself, you've got some serious problems of your own. Because just like them, sometimes we just don't get Jesus. We don't get what he is doing and what he's up to even now. Maybe we're as blind as they are, they were when it comes to following him. Blinded by tradition preconceived notions of discipleship in the church or prejudice or jealousy or ambition or pride or selfishness clouds our vision of what Jesus is really trying to accomplish in the world. Now, if that's true of you, I know it's true of me. We have a choice. There's there is something that should be done, that they should have done, and that's repent. Turn from our wickedness to Jesus and following his way in truth. James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this? That your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. 
Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves, therefore, before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Jesus' kingdom really is an upside-down kingdom, isn't it? In order to be truly great, you must be the least of all. Outdo one another in showing honor. Humble ourselves. When the world is telling us to puff yourselves up, you're right, let everybody know. That's not the design of God's kingdom. Grace, humility, preferring others above ourselves, love, real love, not love is love that you're hearing out there, true love, preferring one another above yourselves. That's what God's kingdom is like. That's the life that we should live in order to glorify him while we're here on earth. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful and humbled by your word this morning. We are thankful that your grace is sufficient for us, that your grace is greater than all our sin, all our pride, our vanity, self-promotion, the secret thoughts that we have about ourselves. We're so thankful that your blood has washed away those sins through faith in Jesus. Lord, we recognize that every good and perfect gift comes from you, our Father. So we pray that you would give us strength, give us the gift of repentance, that we could turn away from our wicked ways to follow you the way that you describe in your word, not according to our imaginations or our traditions or the Jesus that we've made up ourselves, we would follow your way according to your word that we would bring you the most glory and not ourselves. We thank you for this difficult word this morning and pray that you would be glorified because of it. We love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would like to participate in the mission of Crossroads Church through financial support, checks can be mailed to Crossroads Church Post Office Box 576 West Ossipee, New Hampshire 03890.